Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Josh, and it's good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, I'm just in a terribly good mood, so I hope uh, if you're not that you won't be offended by that. <laughs> you know, people in good moods, when you're not in a good mood, can be a little annoying. But uh, I'll do my best to help out. But you know what? Here's the deal. I have been to the Pumpkin Festival. I mean, am I acceptable now? Woo! And my wife and children went to the 15-hour parade yesterday. It was neat. That was good. It was good stuff. And I had, for the very first time, thanks to the men of Cross Point, uh, early, early Saturday morning, men's, church men's groups just decide to get up really early on Saturday mornings, have breakfast, and I had with the men of Cross Point my first ever pumpkin pancake, which is rocking. I mean, <laughs> off the hook, Fantastic. So all of that, you add all that up together, uh, and I have my wife with me this morning. You add all that up, and I'm just in a really great mood. So here's where we're going. We're going to uh, Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're talking about outreach. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Uh, Today we're going to review a little bit of what I talked about last week, and then I'm going to attempt to finish the sermon I started last week, and we're talking about outreach, the importance of outreach, and that can mean evangelism or witnessing or world missions or local missions, outreach. That's what we are talking about. That's the topic. We get that topic, not from our own opinion or our own cleverness, but from the Lord Jesus himself in verses 13 through 16, and this is a part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, starting verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In these verses, in the two parables, the salt and the light, we see that Jesus is creating us not for ourselves but for the world. Note that. We exist for the earth. We exist for the world. We exist as salt and light. We are missionaries. Now, I want to show you context in the fact that outreach, evangelism, and missions is not a peripheral topic for Jesus, but is the central topic in Jesus' ministry and what he's trying and burdened to tell us as his followers. Look in chapter 4 of Matthew 4 and look at verse 16 where Matthew, uh, uh, applying to the ministry and the life of Jesus, calls him the light of the world. Look at Matthew 4 and verse 16. This is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40. He says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus is the light here. And for those dwelling in region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, very clearly, Jesus came into the world to save the world, to be the light of the world. Now, jump down really quick. One more verse as one more example, just thinking about outreach and mission. Evangelism. Look at verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19. And he said to them, that is Jesus, he said to them, follow me 
And I will make you closet Christians who are hidden away from the world, privatized in your spirituality, separated forever from the world and all those godless, worldly, non-Christian people. That's not what he says, is it? He says, follow me and I will make you, everybody say make you, make you fishers of men. In other words, uppermost in the mind of Christ and his relationship with you and with me and with us as a church is to make us about missions. We are a church community that exists to reach the world in whatever way God enables us to do it. Uh, We are not hammer swinging and high-fiving with Jesus until we are on mission, until we are totally focused as a priority on evangelism and outreach and witnessing and positioning our ministries at Cross Point to reach our communities, our neighborhoods, your neighbors, co-workers, everybody that we know, and until our own life is viewed as a life lived for Christ and for others. Now, before we were Christians... We existed for ourselves. Before we were Christians, we existed for our interest and our professional advancement and what people thought of us professionally or intellectually or, you know, whatever. But after Christ came into our life, we now exist for Him and for others. Obviously, the, raw, uh, the broader context of the Gospel of Matthew is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so the question is, well, how can we hammer swing and high-five with Jesus more dynamically as a community, as a church community that exists on mission? How do we do that? And that is what our text and what Jesus helps us with. With the commandment, he gives the enablement. enablement. With the commandment, he gives great parables. And he says, this is how you do it. This is how you are to be my witness. This is how you are to do outreach. This is how you are to be the church. He says, and we talked about it last week, he said, you are the salt of the earth. Be salty. Salt is a preservative. We talked about this last week. Salt is a preservative, right? Salt exist to be rubbed into meat to slow down corruption to to not necessarily get rid of corruption right we can't get rid of evil we can't get rid of sin but by our life and our lifestyle god has put us into this world to slow down corruption we're to be salty put in your notes there i have some uh, blank spaces today but put in your uh, notes salt equals our wordless put this down wordless witness our nonverbal witness, our wordless witness, the most, some of the most powerful things that God does through us is not through what we say or what our theology is, but the way we practice our life. And last week we looked at Jeremiah chapter 29. We won't go there again today. We looked at Jeremiah 29 as an example of how we're salty in our communities and in our culture. How are we salty in our communities? We get married. We have babies. We uh, do good work. We raise our children well. We, we, have, we don't only get married, but we're, we're concerned about having good marriages. And that's salty in our culture, for sure. A good marriage is salty in our culture. In some cases, that can be salty in the church even, right? But we are to be salty, have good uh, families, good marriages, good kids. How else can we be salty? What else is the wordless witness of what we believe, the wordless witness of the glory of God? 
Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about other salty things like overcoming lust, like overcoming anger, like overcoming the desire to always take revenge. If you take out my eye, I'm going to take off your head. And Jesus goes on to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount, you're not to take off the head for the eye or even the eye for the eye. You're to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. That's salty, see? Being people that don't take revenge, being people that don't harbor boiling anger, being people that don't grumble and murmur and complain just like everybody else. And the problem is, this is what we have to be aware of. Loved ones, listen to me. We have to be aware of practical atheism where we come to church, we have good doctrine and good theology, but when we go out and we act like and we have attitudes and our actions demonstrate that in, when it comes to the real business of life, we don't really believe God's there with us. We can't be anxious like everybody else. We can't be fearful like everybody else. We can't throw up our hands and complain like everybody else. We're to be salty in what we believe. We're to say God is sovereign. God knows the end from the beginning. God has called me by name. God knows every hair on my head. God has bottled every tear. Nothing has taken God by surprise. I can never wake up in the day and say, God, did you know what's going on in the world? And he's going, no, really. Give me an intelligence briefing, you know? Like, God's in control. So we never go, we never act like he's not in control. Like, oh my gosh, I don't think Gabriel let God know. You know, God's in control. And as we do that, as we have attitudes and 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 and. And we go out and we live our life and we're loving and we're serving each other. And we're talking about each other lovingly, not sarcastically. Not always bagging on each other, but lifting each other up as we're encouraging our wives. And our wives are encouraging their husbands. And as our kids say, I like mom and dad. I like being at home. I like my home. As, As we raise our families in the fear of God, it's salty, see? God uses that to slow down corruption. We're like, you know what we are? We're like a dehumidifier. Now, everybody here knows a lot about basements, right? How many of y'all know a lot about basements? You know, yeah. I know nothing about basements. I'm from Oklahoma, and the way Oklahomans build houses, we go, throw a slab down, put some wood up, got a house. And pray to the Lord a tornado doesn't come. You know what I mean? I know, so I bought a house, of course, that has a, a basement here. And I know nothing about basements. And I, I, I have, I've seen probably maybe one dehumidifier in my whole life. But I've got this big dehumidifier down there in that basement, right? And what I've learned about this dehumidifier, I know it's no surprise to you, but this is all brand new to me, is you turn it on, and what's it do? It takes in the moisture. And as it takes in the moisture, and as it takes in the humidity, what's it do? It keeps the mold from growing on my walls, which I'm a fan of. You exist to be in culture, not out of culture. You exist to be in society, not out of society. You're not of the world, but you are sent into the world. And as you live for God in the midst of culture, like salt to meat, you and culture, as you're right there in the midst of culture, living out your Christian faith and all of the, uh, all of the implications of it, you're keeping mold from getting on the walls of your neighborhood, of your schools, of your, of your, of your city. You see, God's put us here as a dehumidifier. Does that make sense? You're salty. It's a wordless, nonverbal witness in how we live out our lifestyle. It's a practical demonstration of a theology deeply believed and lived out. Salty. 
salt equals our wordless witness. But then he talked about, and we talked about last week, the light. We are also, look at verse 14. You are, he says, the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. What we talked about last week is we talked about that in the Bible, metaphorically, light always refers to truth, to instruction, to teaching the truth, to to a wordy or verbal teaching of what God has revealed. So put in your notes there, if salt is our wordless witness, being the light equals having a word witness. And the goal... Uh, according to this, and I encourage you to listen to the message online from last week. We went into this in quite a bit of depth. But the goal is, is that as the light of the world, we actually begin to attract non-churched people who don't believe in God. We begin to attract people uh, uh, to us for the purpose of witnessing verbally what we believe. We begin to articulate theology. We begin to articulate scripture. We begin to articulate and preach and teach and instruct. We do the same thing with our kids. So we're salty in our kids' lives by the way we live out our lifestyle. We're loving. We have good marriages for the sake of our kids. And then our kids begin to say, well, what's that mean? And, and, and what is the meaning of this saltiness? And then we begin to teach our kids with our words what God has revealed, what God has revealed. We are the light of the world. And as a church... Check me. As a church, we exist to be a city on a hill. To attract people who don't believe in God to come into the house. Not to cover up the word, but to make it understandable for unbelievers. For people who are not believers. Who haven't been caught in the fisher's net yet. And we throw out the net and we bring them in by making the word understandable. Making it applicable. Connecting the riches of, of Christ to the realities of their life. And as we do that, we're going to pull the net to shore as a church. And we're going to gather them up. Because you're going to invite them. You're going to be the light. You're going to invite them to church. Or you're going to invite them to your life group. Or you're going to invite them to a, to a church event or something like that. And we're going to bring them in. And then they're going to hear the word. And they're going to believe. But of course, in some cases, you're called to be the preacher. To proclaim. To give verbal testimony of your testimony. To tell people what you believe. And what they're called to believe by God. Which is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That Jesus took away the sin of the world. That Jesus has defeated death. Just like we've been singing about today. You see, we are the light of the world. We're to attract unbelievers. We're not to hide the light. We're not to say, I hope they don't see the light. We're not to say, I got the light and you don't have the light. See, we, we are the light in the sense we want, we are for people. We're for everybody. We want people to know Jesus. And we know that we're here on that very purpose. Now, the best illustration I can think about when you think about being the light on, on a hill is the Magi, right? How did the Magi find Jesus? Well, the Magi found Jesus because they saw the star, and they saw the light of the star, and that star kind of attracted them, and they began to follow that star. And that star led them. They're like, I'm following the star, I'm following the star, I'm following the star. And then what happened is, is they get to Jerusalem, 
And they get into Jerusalem, and they say, we have seen his star. We don't know who he is, and we don't, we've never met him, but we've seen his star. Where is he? And the scribes, unwittingly, unwittingly, they open up what? They open up the truth. They open up the Bible, and they say, he will be born in Bethlehem. And as a result of seeing the star, then hearing the word of, of, of God and the prophecy of Jesus, they are able then to go and worship Jesus because of that. Now, ultimately, that is my whole philosophy of church. A church is a star. It attra- it's a people that are attractive. It's a people that, that and it's a church a community that attracts people, and they kind of come, and we don't save people. We're no, we're no more powerful than the star in saving people than the star was to the Magi. But when the people come, they say, we have seen a star. And then they begin to ask questions. And then we open up Scripture and we say, Jesus is found here. He's found at the cross. He's found in resurrection. Jesus is found here. And then, like the Magi, unbelieving, Gentile, pagan, jacked-up people will start to worship Jesus with us because we are the light of the world. Bill Hybels, who has that small church over there in Carroll Stream. Anybody heard of him? Anyways, he said, I don't agree with everything he says, but he did say the church is the hope of the world. You can't read these verses and not see that. We are the light of the world. We exist to attract people to Jesus. Our Christianity doesn't exist for us. We talked about it last week. We don't believe in closet Christianity. We don't believe in a Christianity which is a coat closet, and I go in there, and it exists for me to hang up my stuff in and to put my shoes in, and it exists there to make me comfortable and cozy. And here it is. This is my little closet. This is my little Christianity, and it's self-serving, and it's privatized and everything like that. You exist to go out and actually suffer like Jesus. You're to go out there, and you're to be so much the light, and we are to be so so much the light that we're attracting people and we're also upsetting people at times but we're trying our best to live for Christ and to live for other people we are the light of the world and let me tell you something every single one of you every single one of you you have a family member you have a next door neighbor you have a co-worker who needs to know God and God puts you in their life so that you can help them know God by your lifestyle and by your words You exist for them more than for yourself. You exist for them. Now, I come from Oklahoma. Oklahoma is one of the most churched areas in the world. In fact, Oklahoma City is the buckle of the Bible Belt. Amen? We are rocking with churches. We got so many churches. And they're big churches and small churches. And there's there's a lot of big churches. And what I've noticed is I've gotten here in the central Illinois and Morton and Washington and East Peoria and Peoria. And you know what? We got a lot of churches. Morton, let me tell you something about Morton. All right? Can I just be honest? I, I'm not trying to offend anybody. Morton's got more churches than pumpkins. All right, I'm telling you. It's like the Protestant Vatican over there. If there were a Protestant pope, he would live in Morton. Okay? We have a lot of churches, and we think, we begin to assume that everybody goes to church, and if they don't go to church around these parts, well, they're so far gone, there ain't no hope for them anyways, although you don't use that accent, you know what I'm saying? We begin to assume that everybody who's going to be found or be a Christian is already a Christian, and my job is just to make my family safe and to make myself safe and enjoy my big flat screen TV in my living room, but that's not true. 
Because you know what? There's about 300,000 people living in our communities. And a conservative estimate would be there's 300 churches. You do the math. You do the math. The math tells us that there are not nearly enough churches and there are not nearly enough people in church. There are not enough people worshiping Jesus in our communities and our neighborhoods. In fact, consider yourself a part of a missionary culture because even the churches that do exist, they're either too legalistic or they're so far gone in their secular expressions that they're no use to anything. They've lost their saltiness a long time ago. You got a bunch of legalistic Christians who walk around and they got all this self-righteousness built up to where they wouldn't be willing to talk to anybody about Jesus. Or you got all these pseudo-Christians who think they're Christian because they play cool Christian rock and roll music. Believe you me, we live in a lost culture. You are a missionary and we exist to be salt in their life and to speak into their life and to be a church that exists for them. For the purpose of the glory of God. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And as a church, we are a city on a hill. Charles Spurgeon says, God wants grace to be so conspicuous as to be a city built on the brow of a mountain. There's nothing conspicuous about what we believe. There's nothing non-essential about Jesus that we are not to live completely for. And as you begin to live as salt and light, you'll be so blessed. You'll become so happy in God as you uh, see yourself as a missionary for God and for Jesus. And as a church, we'll be so unified as we continue to be salt and light and reach more people because more people need to be reached. So salt is our wordless witness. Light is our word witness. And then finally, this is what I didn't get to. By the way, I said all of that last week. So now we're going original. All right, verse 16. Uh, He he says in verse 16, he says, uh, and this is just so key. He says, in the same way. In other words, this is deeply connected to those two other parables of salt and light. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Note, the goal is the glory of the Father in heaven. The goal is that people will give glory to your Father. The key word, though, in verse 16, to understand the importance of this, is shine. Everybody say shine. All right, now something shines. It's a great picture. Something shines because something is on the inside shining out. Or you're reflecting something like the moon reflects or shines because the sun's hitting the moon, right? Or a light bulb shines because electricity and light comes out. So in other words, when you shine, you are either reflecting or demonstrating a light that's not Inherently yours, but something you have on the inside and it comes on the outside. Does that make sense? Now put in your notes that shine equals our works, works witness. Our good works witness. And it's important to understand that about shine because he says about shine. He says, shine before others so that they may see your good works. It's obvious that Jesus is saying 
that the way that we shine is through our good works. The good works is what shines. But when you understand that shine is something that comes from the inside out and it reflects, you understand that good works is the result of something prior to the good works. Now, I want you to take your pencils and circle the word good, all right? Because it's important that we understand good works. Shine equals good works. And this is how we're going to be good witnesses and missionaries and how we're going to be a good church is to understand what kind of good works we're talking about. Now, in the Greek language, this was written in Greek, there's two ways that you can talk about good. There's one word. It's called agathos, agathos. You can say agathos works. Agathos works is like it's good in the sense that it's moral, right? It's good in the sense that it mechanically works. If your car is working today and it's in good condition, it's agathos. The engine's running like it should. The the wheels are running like it should. It's agathos. It's just morally good. It's just mechanically sound. But there's another word for good, which is kala, kala. And kala, as the word good, is, it's not, it's morally good, but it's qualitatively good. There's a quality. So it's not just my car is mechanically sound, but my car is a Corvette. It looks good as it works. You know what I'm saying? It shines. It, it's, uh, uh, there's a, there's a car that's in good running condition, but it's ugly and it's brown and it's, no offense to anybody who has a brown car, but you know what I'm saying. But then there's kind of a good car that, that like, is attractive. It, 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 it not only runs mechanically sound, but it's the way it goes. It sounds good. I had a Camaro. I'm telling you, this car was so sweet. It had a V8 engine. And when I turned it on in the morning, it went... Right? Now, everybody's car turns on when you start it in the morning, hopefully. Right? It's in good mechanical condition. But if it goes... That's really good. See, that's good quality. Does that make sense? Are you seeing the difference? Now, what I'm trying to tell you is this, in, 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 in summary is this. There is such a thing as bad, good works. And there is such a thing as good, good works. There is such a thing as bad morality. Bad, good morality. Morality that is has absolutely no lasting, eternal, significant value at all. There is such a thing as good works that's not really that good. And Jesus labors with his disciples, and in contrast to the Pharisees of his time, he labors to try to tell them the difference between bad good works and good good works. He wants them to have kala good works. Look at Matthew chapter 6 real quick, just to give you some context. Matthew chapter 6 and uh, verse 1. Now, watch what he says. Same sermon. Sermon on the Mount. Same context. He's talking to the same people. But watch what he says. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, wait a minute. Jesus is confusing everybody. 
Because he just said to us in the salt and light deal, he said, do your good works so that when people see them, they'll glorify God. And now he's saying, don't do your righteousness before other people. So how can he be talking about, on the one hand, displaying good works, but on the other hand, not displaying good works? That's because there's a difference. The Pharisees' good works is bad good works. It's morality. It's, it's being upright. It's being a good citizen. But it's not due to an encounter It's not because of a relationship, and it's not because of the power of God. It's in their own strength, and it's so that they might show off and self-justify themselves. See, that's bad good works. But good good works is the result of the grace of God. Good good works is as a result of something coming on the inside of us, transforming us and shining. And the difference between bad good works and good good works is that good good works as a result of God's grace is very natural. It flows out of relationship with God. It flows out of the grace that he's given us through Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers said, it's what God does through us that counts, not what we do for God. Good, good works is the result of Christ dying for our sins, rising on the third day, giving us the Holy Spirit, and then naturally, cheerfully, out of gratitude, out of transformation, we act and we, and we live transformed lives. Do you see the difference? You say, practically, what's the difference? Is there any practical difference between bad good works and good good works? Yeah. Because bad good works is forced. It's under compulsion. It's out of greed or guilt. It's like, I better do this so that I'll be right with God. Or if you're a secular person and you don't believe in God, you do good works so that you can get the promotion or get something for yourself or it's pragmatically practical to do good works. It's out of compulsion or guilt or greed. But the good works that Christ brings about in our hearts by grace as a result of relationship with him, do you know it's so natural it flows? We'll do good works whether it brings us something good or whether it doesn't. We'll do good works out of grace, from grace, because God's changed our hearts and out of love and relationship. The difference is illustrated very easily. Like, okay, let's say... Let's say this pencil is flowers, all right? This is flowers. And I take flowers to Sherry. And I won't point her out because she doesn't like me to do that. But I bring flowers to Sherry and I give her flowers. And I say, now that's a good work, amen? That is a good work. It is good works to bring Sherry flowers. And I say, Sherry, baby, here's some flowers for you. And she takes the flowers and she says, oh, she says, you are so tall, dark, and handsome and strong. You're the most masculine man I've ever seen before in my life. And I'm like, thank you. You know what I mean? (laughs) And then she says, and then she says, why ever, why ever did you bring me flowers? Now, let me give you an example of bad good works. All right, here's an example of bad good works. I say, because I had to. Because that's what a good Christian does. That's all you women want are flowers. You want flowers? There's flowers. You see the diff. You see what I'm saying? That's why Valentine's is so stupid. Because on Valentine's we do bad good works. Because we're forced to give you ladies candy and flowers. And what you should say is true good works. We'll do it on days outside of Valentine's. And then you would get more flowers and candy. But anyways. (laughs) 
Now, let me give you an example of good, good works. All right? Here's an example of good, good works. Bad, it's forced. It's compulsion. It's greed. It's like, well, I hope you're happy now that you got flowers. And we say to God sometimes, I hope you're happy that I gave money today. Hope you're happy that I came to church and worshiped. I hope you're happy that I'm witnessing. And we go into witness, bad, good works wise. And we go in there and say, Bob, we're by the water cooler. Do you believe in Jesus? Because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. I'm supposed to witness because my pastor told me so. You see, that's bad, good works. Now, good, good works is this, flowers. I bring them to Sherry. I say, Sherry, these flowers are for you. She takes them. And she praises my great name. She says, you are the master of the living room. You are the man. You are, your eyes are so hot. You know what I mean? Why ever, why ever did you give me flowers? And I say to her, because I love you. Because I can't help but bring you flowers. You bring out something in me that just loves the smell of flowers. I got some candles in the trunk. We're going to light them up. We're going to hit this place smelling great because you do something to me that changes me. And I love you. And that's good, good works. When Jesus is comparing good works of his disciples to good works of Pharisees, Pharisees are all like, well, this is what God demands, and this is what God wants, and I better do it or else I'm going to go to hell, and so are you. And they bring flowers to God out of compulsion, out of religion, out of rules. But you see, when we've been changed and transformed as a result of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, what happens is He changes us. And, and, and we come and we, and we love God because He's our Father and we're in relationship with Him. And, and then when we're salt and we're light, people know it's not something you're doing. It's something that somebody else is doing in you. And when they go, wow, those good works are phenomenal, but it's because you've received a love. What's the love in your life? And then what you're going to say is, it's God. It's the, see, it glorifies God. It doesn't glorify us. It glorifies Him. It, it, it brings weightiness to God, not to myself. He becomes the heavyweight, the definer of my life. And that changes people's lives. And it changes a church. Why, why does the church always have conflicts and division and all that? Because... Listen, loved ones, the most, they used to say, the most segregated place in America on Sunday morning is, is the church, right? And I will say this, that the most insecure rooms in America are churches because people are so insecure in the church. Why are people so insecure and defensive and grumbling and murmuring and divisive and just... Why do churches get like that? I'll tell you why. Because they don't feel like that they're accepted. They don't feel like until they get it all right that they'll be acceptable. And they feel frustrated and confined and and like, I'm trying to bring flowers to God and you're getting in my way. Good works comes because of grace. Write this down. This will help you. Religion... Religion says to you, if you obey God, you will be accepted by God. That's bad, good works. 
If you obey God, then you will finally be accepted by God. The gospel and grace says this, you are accepted by God. Jesus died for you. He paid not part of the penalty, all of the penalty. He rose again. He has placed at your disposal, out of his ascension, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, church. You are already accepted by God. Therefore, obey him. And the difference in attitude, the difference in atmosphere is is amazing between those two types of obedience, between those two types of good works. And what that means, bottom line is this, what that means as a church and as a people is that the way we begin outreach that brings about real revival and renewal in our own lives and in people's lives, the first step of outreach, the ultimate step of outreach that leads to, it's a domino effect. You want to be a good witness? You want to be an evangelist? You want to fulfill your ministry in the church and outside of the church? The first step is this, enjoy God. Enjoy God. He has earned the right for you to enjoy Him. He, he, paid, he removed all the penalties so that you can enjoy Him. So enjoy Him. Treasure Him. Receive Him. Stop trying to bring Him something. Open up an empty hand and say, I just want to enjoy you today. Every day, wake up and tell God. Tell Jesus. Say, Jesus... Everything is going to feel more important than you today. Help me to love you today. Help me to enjoy you today. Spend less time watching TV if you have to. Spend less time looking at emails if you have to. Spend less time on Facebook if you have to. Do everything you can just to enjoy him. Treasure him. John Piper said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in God. He calls it Christian hedonism, that we were created for pleasure, that we were created to enjoy things. Our problem is not that we need pleasure. Our problem is that we settle on second-rate pleasures in this world and that our goal is to worship and to take pleasure in God, to let him be the spring of living water. What is David always saying in the Psalms? Y'all know David. What's he always saying in the Psalms? He's always saying, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Rejoice in God. Why won't you rejoice in God, oh my soul? Come on, soul. Come on, get fired up about God. That's what David's always singing. That's the application. Why do we sing to enjoy God? Why do we preach the gospel as not a system of works, but a message of grace to enjoy God? Why do we get together in our life groups? To enjoy God and to remember that we're to enjoy God together. Why do we pray? To enjoy God. We take pleasure in God. more time I spend with Sherry privately, the more time I spend having quality time with her, the more I want to give her flowers. If I deprive my quality time with Sherry, the less I don't bring flowers to her. And so it's the same way with God. You've got to enjoy God. And as you enjoy, listen, you're going to commend what you enjoy. You're going to tell other people what you're enjoying. Like I'm just about. In fact, right now, I'm going to tell you right now, I really enjoyed OU's football game last night. Amen? Amen. Florida State thought they were going to come back in the fourth quarter, but they did not. No. You know. 
They did not. And Sherry and I, I tell you, Sherry, she's very quiet. We were in the middle of the living room. We were jumping up and down, high-fiving. Right? And we're just like, yeah. And the girls are like coming down. You want me up? You know? And we're like, we don't care. Go back to bed. We're watching football. You know? And God made us that way. God made for us to commend what we treasure, to tell people about what's important to us. How many people don't have, who have, I'm looking at a little baby over here. How many people have new babies and you don't have that baby on your iPhone and you're not always like, hey man, come here, come here, man. Hey, Bob, Bob, come here, check this out. Huh? Huh? And Bob's like, oh, she's so cute. Yes. And you know, like Bob's like, I've seen a million babies. They all look the same. They all look like Winston Churchill. Amen. (laughs) They do. They do. But why are you telling Bob about another baby that he's seen a million of? Because it's important to you. God made you like that. And as you enjoy God, and you can. You confess Christ. You confess he died for all of your sins. You don't let Satan or the world or religion tell you at any moment that you can't go to God right now because you're not right. You need to go to God because you're not right. Not because you're right. You need to go to God and confess that Jesus died for you. And enjoy God today. That's what we've been talking about, the ancient pathways. How do I enjoy God? Scripture. But don't just read because it's religiously what you're supposed to do. Read because you're saying, God, I want to enjoy what you say. Fellowship. Get in a life group. Come this Wednesday night. Uh, We're trying to connect all of our life groups. Get home groups, praying together, things like that. Life group. Come this Wednesday. It's important. Prayer. Praying to God to enjoy God. That is an hedonistic feast. It should be a hedonistic feast to pray to God, to to talk to God. And outreach, it's always the result of enjoying God because you're going to start to tell people, like, man, I got to tell you, I mean, here's my baby on the phone. Here's my OU shirt. But let me tell you what makes my heart go ding. What makes my heart red line. What makes my heart just the trajectory blow things that what blows my heart out of the water is God and I know him and I'm a sinner saved by grace and here's how he came into my life and this is what we talk about at church and I wouldn't be your friend unless I told you about that I, I if I can't tell you I can't tell anybody outreach we exist for mission so let us celebrate him and enjoy him and treasure him. And then when ding goes the bell in our heart, let us remember to share him with other people. And as a church, let us be concerned that that statement that's right above our cross is not some kind of vain, pious talk, but it becomes a legitimate concern of our church to see those 300,000 people and all the people that don't know Jesus. Let's make sure that we care about them. We're doing everything we can to reach them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We confess again that uh, we really have nothing to bring to you except for our hearts, which are broken or confused or scared or totally sinful. We have nothing to bring to you. But we are so grateful for your son, Jesus, who makes the way, who is the life, who is our righteousness. And we stand in him believing that we are forgiven, trusting that we 
are made right with you by grace. And so based on that grace and his righteousness, help us to love you. Help us show yourself, revive us, awaken us. In some cases, for some people here, cause them to be born again. Help us to experience spiritual renewal. Help us to be a church of renewal and truth and love. God, help us to love you so much that we're no longer insecure and we got to be sarcastic with each other all the time or, or uh, so, so needy that, that we're reaching and abusing each other, but help us to be completely satisfied, content with nothing else to do but to give and to serve and to love Make us salt in our culture. Help us to love our cities and our neighborhoods. Help us to love our world. Help us to love people. Make us great lovers because you were a lover of us when we did not deserve it. You made us a priority when we did not deserve to be a priority in your life. And help us now as your followers to be catchers of men. Making them a priority to you even though they don't deserve it. God, just fill us up with your spirit and your word. And as we treasure you, help us to commend you to our world. And then when we get to glory and we're sitting and worshiping at your feet, help us to rejoice in the harvest that you brought about through us. We rejoice with you, Jesus. You are the missionary. Make us now fishers of men and people who really love God. Amen.